Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Greetings, church. Good morning. It's a good day. I hope you feel like it's a good day to be here. I mean, you're here, so you might as well enjoy yourself, right? I believe God's going to lead us and show us something that we need to hear today. And I hope and pray that every time you uh, come to the words of the Lord from the Word of God in the Scriptures, that you come anticipating. Not just on a Sunday morning at church, but when you are reading uh, the Word, on, you're listening to it on your way to work in the morning, or if you're sitting at your dining room table and you're opening up Scripture and seeing what God says, I hope and pray that you go there with anticipation. Because otherwise, we're not going to be noticing and looking for what God's going to do. We might even miss it. So uh, we're really glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, glad that you're here as well. Uh, question for us as we get started. How important in your life, how important is it to be right? How important is it for you to be right and to prove to others that you are right? Let me ask you a different question. It might even help you a little bit. How frustrating is it to you? When people misunderstand you, when, when people make an assessment of you because they had an interaction and, and they uh, judged you, not necessarily like in a, in a mean judge way, but they judged who you are in a wrong way, according to you, how frustrating is that for me? It's, it's more frustrating to me than I'd like to admit if I'm being honest. Um, you know, and I, I think this has probably been like, for as long as I can remember, that's been that way. Just for instance, when I decided to start playing hockey, I was 11 years old. And most kids, when they grow up wanting to play hockey, they start when they're four or five. Start getting on skates and getting to know how to ice skate. Uh, how many of you have been ice skating before? Just raise your hands, okay? All right. Um, so um, in hockey, right, like if you are new to it, they don't just throw you on some skates and throw you on a team to start playing hockey because um, some of you probably have recognized, those of you who raised your hand, that ice skating is not always that easy, especially this thing. Um, how many of you can do a hockey stop like, like that? How many of you? It's not very easy, right? So the, the, the thing that I had to do is I had to go through a year-long initiation program to be able to learn how to skate, to be able to learn how to play and be able to stick handle and all that stuff so that when I got on the ice, I didn't, didn't get killed. That's really the whole point. So when I did get on a team, I was 12 years old, and this was the division where you could hit each other. Like, that was encouraged. It's called checking, not tackling, but checking. So um, my first game, I go out there, first time ever playing uh, competitive hockey, and I spent most of the time in that game, not on my skates, but on my rear end and on my back. Just because every time I get up, Boom! You get knocked down, and I was not happy. Y'all, it is embarrassing as a, as a 12-year-old guy to come out of, from your game and have your grandma ask you, Honey, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, that's just not, you're not looking very cool to your friends at that point. Because they were concerned about your well-being, because they watched you uh, flopping around on the ice like a fish because everyone kept knocking you down. Uh, so I would, I, I just, I was set out to prove that game wrong. Like if you were at that game, I would want to prove your assessment of me and my ability wrong. So I had a chip on my shoulder. So the next practice that I had, we had this drill called the gauntlet. And the gauntlet is designed in hockey where uh, your whole team 
except for one person, lines up against the boards and faces the person who's like it, right? And their, their job, the person who's skating toward the rest of their team, is to get through their teammates through, through where they are, right? And so the only uh, objective for the, the teammates who are standing there looking at you is to knock you down. That's all they've got to worry about is to just knock you down. They don't have to worry about puck or anything. They just, they just get to hit you. Just boom, right? So in this moment, um, in this drill, I knew this was my moment. And so I, for some reason, there was some kind of flip that switched inside of me from deep within. This was something that, you know, normally in normal life, I knew because of society and what I was taught, like I wasn't supposed to be this way. Like just with the, this anger and passion and just wrath, I wasn't supposed to tap into that. But in hockey, that came in, in handy. So uh, something happened and I went through that, that drill and I went through all my teammates and they all ended up on the ice and I felt really good because then that just ignited in me a different way of playing hockey than I did the first game. So from then on, I was not the, the guy um, necessarily always getting hit, but I was the one hitting everyone else. I was the one who, and even though I'm not very big, I was the one who was the uh, aggressor, the enforcer, the one who was really making the other team very annoyed with me, not just because of my body, but because of my mouth too, okay? Um, sometimes if you if you got words, you can use those for, for good or for ill, right? Um, and so that kind of put me on a trajectory where I was able to tap into the chip on my shoulder through hockey. But how many of you know that walking around with a chip on your shoulder in life is kind of dangerous? Like if you're just walking around and and you're just ready for anyone to come against you and to prove yourself right and to prove them wrong, you are going to go into some spaces and places that, that you wouldn't intend to go. Um, like maybe some of you have been in these moments, right? When someone maybe disrespects you and instead of like taking a step back, recognizing that they're, you know, that they don't know you or they're, they're, they're misassessing you and, and you know, it's not worth retaliation, but instead you retaliate and you make the situation far worse than it already was. And then you sit there regretting your decisions. Have any of you been there? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. I speak from experience. Some of us, you know, when someone doubts us or challenges us, we set out to prove them wrong and to prove ourselves right. Maybe someone said that, you know, you're not brave or courageous or they made you feel small and so you acted out and you did something careless to, to prove that you were courageous. Or, or some of us, you know, some, somebody might have uh, questioned your, your appearance and like made you feel less than, made you feel ugly. And so then you got real caught up in your appearances and trying to make up for that all the while trying to prove them wrong and to prove yourself right or to prove to you that you are worth it. See, this is what we're talking about here is this chip on the shoulder and, and this desire to prove ourselves right and to prove others wrong when they come against us or they doubt us or they challenge us is coming from a place of identity and specifically a, a place of insecurity. And, and this is the, the, the field, the, the zone that the devil oftentimes wants to battle with us in. Uh, that he wants us to doubt uh, who we are in Christ. He wants us to doubt who we are as human beings made in the image of God. He wants us to make us feel less than and make us to feel like we've got to prove our worth to him or to some other people. If you remember a few weeks ago, um, we talked about how Jesus had gone into the waters of baptism and when he came up, 
God the Son came up out of the water, and then God the Spirit descended from heaven onto him like a dove, and then the God the Father, Heavenly Father, declared to Jesus from heaven, said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and then in that moment, what I, what I showed you and reminded you is, is in Christ, when you surrender to Jesus and you give him your life, he, he's covering you with his blood and you are in him and he is in you. And that status then changes. And so there, uh, in, in Christ, God the Father then declares to you as his son or daughter, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. It's not just a declaration for Jesus, but it's a declaration for you if you surrender to Jesus and you are in Christ. And how that changes the way we look at ourselves. That changes the way we should operate. That changes our self-image. That changes the way we operate. It changes everything about us. But we shouldn't be surprised then when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, that the devil decides to attack the very declaration that the Father gave to Jesus. And that's the very declaration that he wants to do battle with you against as well, because we are in a series called Spiritual Warfare, how the devil attacks. And what we need to remember is in the first week, I said, you're in a war. And you need to make sure that you recognize that. And so as as we jump in, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Um, starting in verse 5. Um, by the way, Taylor did an awesome job last week. Uh, that was not planned. Uh, I was supposed to preach, and then and I got sick, and then Mike was supposed to preach, then he got sick, and then Taylor had to start preparing his sermon for last Sunday at midnight, like that day, like Sunday at midnight, 12 o'clock. Um, and he did a great job. So I just have to give him kudos. Can we thank God for his uh, just willingness to jump in? It's, it's hard to preach, y'all. I mean, it's not easy, especially when you got like a few hours to prepare, okay? Not like a week or a month or whatever. Um, so that, that was a great job from him. So he, he brought us up to speed, showed us um, from last week how, how the devil tried to get Jesus to turn the, the stones into bread. And um, now we're going to see in Matthew 4, starting in verse 5, this is what... Matthew says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, took Jesus to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then the devil took him to the holy city. He took him to Jerusalem. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, the, the highest point. It's really interesting that the devil would choose to do this. Now, um, just in the text, right, it says that the devil took him to the holy city um, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know if he physically took him there because he was in the wilderness, so he was not in Jerusalem at the time, so the holy city is Jerusalem. Um, but it's really interesting that the devil would bring Jesus to this specific point in the world. Because this was the specific point that was prophesied that God was going to do something amazing, was going to do something uh, pivotal for humanity, that this was going to be the place. And this is where we know, if you read the story, you understand the account of Jesus, that he ended up being crucified in Jerusalem. um, and, And that is where he bore all of our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our shame on the cross once and for all. And that's where he was resurrected. So Jerusalem was going to be the place, the stage. For God to do something amazing. And so the devil brings Jesus. Remember, he's still been, he's been fasting 40 days, 40 nights. He's tired. He's weak. He's vulnerable to attack. He says, hey, 
if you're the son of God. Sometimes we deal with people who like to make <clears throat> snide remarks, you know, like maybe you find yourself, like in their estimation, they think that you think a certain way about yourself. So they say something in this not necessarily passive aggressive way, but just really like snidely way. Like, oh, if you're the son of God, then prove it. And that's what the devil was doing. If you're the son of God, like, hey, I know the father just said this about you and you understand yourself to be this. And obviously the devil knew who he was, but he wanted them to say uh, to manipulate his identity so that he would be willing to do something that his character would not be in line with. If you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. Some of us, we've been in moments where people would make those kinds of comments about us. Maybe a coworker just can't stand, they can't stand you, make, make comments, make you doubt your self-worth, make you doubt your value, make you feel like you've got to prove to them something so that they'll accept you or that they'll approve of you. Maybe you've had a boss that way. Maybe you've had parents that way, friends, enemies make you feel less than unless you do exactly what they say. And it's the same dog and pony show in middle school. It just continues and perpetuates into adulthood, right? And, and so the devil brings Jesus to this point in uh, Jerusalem and says, hey, this is, I mean, this is the temple. This is where the presence of God is dwelling, the Holy of Holies. So God's presence is here. And this would have been a public spectacle opportunity. It was in the, in the midst of the, the, the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem that Jesus could prove once and for all that he is the son of God. How? So he can jump and the angels would grab him. Prove it. Show everyone who you really are. And, and so that's, that's what he started doing. He, he, he was trying to get Jesus to prove his identity and worth. How do you respond when someone doubts you or challenges you? How do you respond? Some of us, we, we take the direct way. And it kind of goes like this. It's a little bit of a process. If you are ever in conflict or you see someone in conflict, you can, you can almost write the script and see what's going to happen if they take the direct route. The direct method, if someone doubts you or challenges you and you don't have enough security in who you are uh, and you, you kind of want to like battle with them, this is kind of the method that you go. Um, you start to build an army of allies, the people like who would be on your side, that you know who would like see your side of the thing. You start to get your friends together, those closest to you, those who you know got your back, those who are ready to ride uh, with you, and, and, and you get them together. And, and what you start doing together with them is you start to build evidence against their assertions, the evidence against their points. Can you believe what they said about me, man? They don't know about this thing and this thing, and man, they don't know about this, and man, you're not that way. You're, you're actually this way, and, and you start to get your your allies together and you start building up the case against their points. And if that doesn't feel like make you feel better, then, then you start to do the next thing. And this is where maybe some of us start. You start to discount the person, discount your opposition. So, well, they don't know this. And like, look at them. Like, well, who are they to say anything about me? Or, or man, did you know about what happened to them? Well, man, you, you should just know, like you shouldn't listen to them because this is how they are and blah, blah, blah. You start to discount the, the person. And then if you're really, really conniving, you present an opportunity, you, you seek to humiliate them with a display of your rightness. Like maybe they humiliated you and so you set out on a path 
that you're going to do the same thing to them. You respond to evil with evil or unkindness with unkindness. And you seek to not just prove them wrong and yourself to be right, but you prove you want to destroy them and make them feel what you've felt. That's the direct method on, on how some of us, we deal with doubts, people doubting us or challenging us. There's also the indirect method, which uh, others of you like better. Uh, the indirect method goes like this. Like if someone criticizes you, say, for instance, uh, in the way that you run your household, then the next time that they're around, you start to modify appearances to prove the opposition wrong. If they criticize you for having a messy house and you make sure that before they come around, you're going to make sure that you do an extra clean that you would never do unless they were coming, you know, or, or you, someone criticizes your way of parenting. So you completely change the way you parent just around them so that you can keep appearances up so you can prove them to be wrong, whatever it is. Maybe you even protect your reputation, your self image, your honor by trying to make sure that you control the situation and this is what the indirect method ends up leading to is that you start to watch them and notice them. You know, you have anger fantasies about it, you know, how, what you would say if you were to say something or do something. But then you watch their life and you're kind of just cheering for their demise. You're just waiting for them to mess up. That way you can be vindicated. <laughs> That's what you get. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Shouldn't have been that way. It's what you get, right? How do you respond when someone doubts you or challenges you? What do you typically do? And, and that's what the devil was doing to Jesus. He was doubting him, making him doubt his identity. And, and let's not make any mistake. This would have been a temptation. I mean, that's just a reaction, right? Like it's a typical reaction to defend yourself if someone questions you. And the interesting thing is that the devil doesn't stop with just making him trying to question his identity, but he actually uses scripture to do so. He uses scripture to justify what he's trying to get him to do. He actually quotes from Psalm chapter 91 when he says he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The interesting thing about his quotation of Psalm 91 is that the devil actually quotes it correctly. He doesn't, he doesn't change any words. He doesn't... Uh, Make it sound different, doesn't change anything. He actually quotes it as it is. The problem is he misapplies it. This is what the word of God says, that the, the, the Lord will give angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so, therefore, you should just jump. And because of what the word of God says, because God has said, this is how he's going to treat you. Just jump. Show us who you really are. Make sure everyone knows that you're the son of God. Go ahead. Jump. And, and the devil does something that is just, it's twisting it, not because he misquotes it, but because he misapplies it. And y'all, there are wolves in sheep's clothing that, that will quote the word of God to you verbatim correctly and then they will try to misapply it to what you should do in response to it and we do this like there are people who do this uh intentionally with with ill will toward it and around it and behind it and there are also people who just know no they don't know any better 
And they just look at the verse and they said, you know, like maybe it's in a tough situation. They don't know what to say. So they say some kind of cliche thing. They quote a Bible verse that didn't have anything to do with your situation. But they say it, you know, to try and like make the anxiety of the situation a little bit better. Let me give you a couple of examples of some of like the most grossly misapplied verses in the Bible that we tend to do, throw around there to each other. Philippians 4.13 is one of them. Um, This is what Philippians 4.13 says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen, hallelujah, thine the glory. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whew, that feels good, right? Like for real, it feels good. That's why we put it on our coffee mugs, put it on our wall. Like that's, we, we feel good about that verse. Because that means everything, anything's possible. If you work hard enough and you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. I can do all things. Uh, it's, it's, you know, like it's the well-meaning parent who tells their kid, you can be anything if you just put your mind to it. You can put, but li- little does the little Johnny know that his parents are like five foot eight. Five, and his dad's five foot eight, tallest one in their family. Mom's like five foot one. The likelihood that little Johnny is going to be able to dunk a basketball and be able to go to the NBA is kind of slim, right? It's just physics. It's just how it is. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can do anything. You can do whatever you want. But is that what Paul's saying? No, it's not. In fact, if you look at the, the passage and look at it in context, what you'll understand is that Paul is speaking from a place where he is uh, in house arrest in Philippi or uh, in, in Rome. And, and he is speaking to the Philippian church and he's describing to them what he's learned about walking with God through tough situations. He says, I have actually learned how to be content no matter what my circumstances are. I can, I can be, I've learned how to be content with a lot, with plenty, and I've learned to be content with little or nothing. And I've actually learned the secret to all this, and that is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this passage, this verse, is actually about contentment, no matter your circumstances, when we try to like attribute it to being able to be successful or to go and do anything that we've ever thought we could possibly imagine we can go do it. And that's just not what it says. It's not what he's saying. Um, Another one, since we're on the subject, since you brought it up, is uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now I'm going to step on everybody's toes. I'm sorry. Okay? Because I know this is some of your favorite. My life first. I love it. Okay? I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, though. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's good. Again, like make a t-shirt, right? That's some good stuff. Um, for I know that plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, it sounds like the American dream wrapped up in a Bible verse. The Lord stamped it, gave a rubber approval and said, yes, amen. Right? It says, hey, it's always going to be up and to the right. I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, Brandon. It's always going to be great. It's always going to be good. It's always going to be hopeful. And the future is always going to be bright. And your presence is always going to be good. That's how we start to apply this. We start to apply, you know, like the business you're going to start, it's going to be successful. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you. 
For what, I know you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's God's uh, desire for you, and that's what he's working out all things for. It's for you to be able to have that bigger bank account, for, for you to get that raise at your job. And, and people have either uh, done a hardline prosperity gospel and says, this is what the Lord's going to give you. He's going to bless you with uh, mountains of cash if you just give to my ministry. <laughs> And then other people do like a soft prosperity gospel. Like as long as you follow after God, he's going to make you happy. As long as you follow after God, he's going to bless you. If you give to him, he's going to give back to you in abundance. Little do we know we're reading about people in scripture. I mean, Jeremiah, for for one, like he was a prophet of God. That sounds good on your resume. But no one listened to him. Like no, no one listened to him. He was a preacher, had no attendance at the church. He's just preaching. No one shows up. Up and to the right. No, the, the context for this, because I could keep talking about this, I need to keep moving. Jeremiah 29, 11 is written from the standpoint of God telling the Israelites as they're in exile, as a people, for I know the plans I have for you, Israel. I know the plans I have for you as a people. That I have plans, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In other words, I'm going to do something in your future that is going to bring you eternal hope. Not just hope in this world right here, like just not to make just your life easier right now, but what, what they had to understand and what they later found out um, is that they were going to send the offspring, that God was going to send his offspring of Israel, of Abraham, and his name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to come to earth, and he's going to right every wrong. He's going to bring the kingdom kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And he's going to give us an opportunity to have freedom and rescue and redemption through him. That this is not saying that you have guarantee of wealth and health, but it's a different guarantee. It's a different opportunity. And so sometimes we misapply that verse and think it's about me. It's about all of the people of God. It was written to Israel and thereby written to all who would respond to Jesus. So you can, you can get the Bible versus the words right and misapply it. And this is why we need to make sure that we read the Bible with intentionality. Not just grab a verse here and there and think we understand it, but to actually read it. If you say you follow Jesus, like, hey, no one's forcing you. But you should also, if you say you're going to follow Jesus, you probably should know what he says about what it means to follow him, right? And so get into his word so that you know how to apply the word to your life. And what, what does Jesus do? So the devil is saying, hey, if you're the son of God, prove it, prove it. Show me by doing this. This is how you prove to me that you are the son of God. If you do exactly what I say, then I'll believe you. Go ahead. And so Jesus has an opportunity. Is he going to listen? Is he going to do what the devil wants him to do? Is he going to say, you know what? Because I feel disrespected, because I feel dishonored, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to prove myself right. I'm going to prove you wrong because I'm going to jump off this temple and, and the angel is going to come and catch me. Or is he going to resist it? Matthew 4, verse 7, it says this, Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Why would he say that? 
Because if he were to follow the devil's advice, the devil's call on his life, then it would be because he was testing God, not trusting God. It would be because he was testing God to make sure. Because that's what we do with relationships that aren't close, right? We don't know how the status is, so we test it. We, we, we reach out a little bit, see how it goes. Are they gonna, are they gonna, if you don't trust, if you don't trust someone, then you're gonna test it. You're gonna test the waters. Are they gonna be able to, are they gonna follow through? You test them. The thing is, that's not how we relate to God. He's trustworthy. We don't have to test them. His word is his bond. His word is a guarantee. God's word is a guarantee. You can just take it to the bank. It'll clear every time. You can go to him. You don't have to, you don't have to question whether or not he loves you. You, you. you can know that he does. You don't have to test him. You don't say, hey, God, uh, let me barter with you a little bit. If you answer this prayer, I'll do that. I'll go do that. I'll, I'll finally be obedient to you. Hey, if you, if you do this, I will, I will start resisting this sin, this temptation. But, but you gotta do this for me. God is not to be bartered with. God is not a genie in a bottle. And he's also not a math equation that you can just plug in the right variables and get the right result, um, every time you press enter. That's not how it works. He's not a computer program. Uh, the Lord is trustworthy, and that's what Jesus knew. Aren't we so thankful that Jesus did not in that moment test God, instead he trusted God? Because the devil was leading him to question his own identity, the, own, the, the declaration of the Father to him. He didn't question it. He resisted that temptation. You see, Jesus didn't need to heed the devil's request, not because of what uh, the devil quoted from Scripture was wrong, but because it was right. See, Jesus knew the rest of Psalm 91. And he knew that uh, his, God's uh, protection of him was not conditional on him uh, throwing himself into a careless situation. In fact, what he knew from that whole chapter is because he knows the word, because he is the word, um, he knew that God was with him in that very moment. As the devil was trying to tempt him, he knew that the Holy Spirit is with him, indwelling him, guiding him, guarding him. He knew that the Father was watching over him and clearing him and protecting him and guarding him and guiding him. He knew that he did not need to do something careless for God to prove that he is his son. He, he knew it was true and he, he knew that, uh, that, that he could trust God in the midst of this temptation because God is trustworthy. Because God declared it to him. And so he trusted it. He didn't have to question it. He didn't have, he didn't, he knew, y'all, he didn't have anything to prove to the devil. Like of all people. God the Son coming around feeling like he's got to prove something to the devil. Y'all, your identity in Christ has been something that's been given to you by him. You don't need to prove that to the devil. Or anyone else. Yes, you want to have the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life so that people would be, it would be evident that you are His child. Yes, for sure. But you don't have to prove it. Why? Because you didn't accomplish it. You didn't achieve it. It's not something you, you got the medal for because you, you did the, the hoops that you jumped through. That's not how it works. You don't, you don't have to prove it to Him. So there, there are two potential paths in life. Two potential paths that all of us can walk down in our walk with God and life in general. 
The first path that we can walk down that, that Jesus could have walked down is the path of insecurity. Uh, I believe that insecurity can be one of the most dangerous things to your walk with God. It just can't. It's, it's, it's messy. And the devil will use that and twist it and put that so deep within you that it's hard to even recognize that it's there. Here's what insecurity does. Insecurity, when you go down that path in life, it'll make you always feel like you gotta, you gotta try to prove yourself. And, and, and in the process of you walking around with a chip on your shoulder, make it, make you feel like you gotta prove yourself. It's driving you and it's gonna burn you up eventually. Always feeling like you gotta prove your worth to, to your parent who never said that they loved you or prove your worth to the, to the boss who didn't give you that raise and, and you quit and you went somewhere else or always trying to prove your worth to your spouse because they don't always, uh, ever, ever tell you how, how they love you and why they love you, but it's, you guys have had a drift. It's, it's that feeling that you gotta prove yourself to your friends or your family because it's not really that you're trying to prove anything to them because it's more like you're trying to prove it to yourself. That you don't see your own worth and value. So you've got to make sure that you, you accomplish enough to reach some kind of pinnacle to where you feel like you're finally where you need to be. And the problem is every time you reach that pinnacle, the pinnacle is going to move. And it's never going to be enough until you find you're enough in him. Insecurity will make you always be, be afraid to lose something. As if you ever had it in the first place. As if it was ever yours. Insecurity make you always worried about being found out. If they only knew the real me. If they ever knew who I really was. Why? Because you're walking around with a mask all the time. Always putting on a front. Trying to project what you think you need to be. While the real you is dying inside. And you don't even know who you are anymore. Insecurity is messy. And it's, it needs to be dealt with because that kind of path will make you liable to pop off, tempted to give up, and, a, and to be a danger to drop off. It, it'll make you liable to pop off. When someone doubts you or challenges you, you're, you're boom. You, you flip the switch and you're ready to fight. Whether it be words or physical or whatever, you're, you're ready to pop off. Why? It's, it's all because of insecurity. It's because you don't see your own worth and value in what God says about you so that when they disrespect you because you get your worth and your value from other people's words about you, when they harm you and disrespect you, you've got to, you got to defend yourself. You got to prove them wrong and you prove yourself right. It'll make you tempted to give up because you grow unsure of yourself. You grow unsure of what God's done in your life. You grow unsure of what he wants you to do. So you just don't try. You don't take any risks. You don't follow God after God with, with a, a, a risk-taking faith. You, you, you stand back and you miss out on all the adventure that God wants to take you on in this life serving him. And, and it can also make you a danger to drop off because... You start to isolate yourself. You don't trust God. You don't trust people. I get it. There's probably been a lot of people in your life who have proven that people are untrustworthy. Like they're they're just not worthy of your trust. They're not worthy of your time. I get it. (laughs) People are a thing that can harm you and heal you at the same time. And it's really frustrating sometimes. But if you start to just go down that path and you lose yourself in it, then... You're going to isolate yourself and it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to work out well. You're going to walk around cynical 
Walk around skeptical. It's not healthy. It's not what God would want for you. The other path, the first one's insecurity. The, the second one is to be secure in Christ, to be secure in who he says about you. And, and you know, like where you rest in what God says about you, no matter what anyone else says about you or to you, it's so hard. It's so hard. Because when you start to become aware that this is the kind of work that God wants to do in you, this is what the, what deep discipleship is like, is when, when God starts to invade and infiltrate those deep parts of your heart that you sometimes don't even re- recognize that they're there, this is what it means to go deep with God, is to let him into the deepest crevices of your heart that maybe you don't even know are there, and you recognize that there are some, you start to see, oh, this is... This is a pattern that's been here in my life since childhood, and it seems like that's the trigger. That's the, that's the point, the pivot point that is perpetuating this process of me becoming this person that I never wanted to be, but it just continues to happen because I've not dealt with the source of my insecurity. Because that, that's, that's uncomfortable, and we don't like being uncomfortable. But that's the kind of work that God wants to do. He wants to... Dig deep so that he can heal you that deep. But a lot of us, we don't want to go there because it's just messy and it's hard. We'd rather just, you know, let's go to church. Let's read a Bible. Let's pray. We'll keep it surface level. We'll just go about our day the way we know how to go about it. We'll cope in unhealthy ways, but that's just how we go about it. You know, every, no one's perfect. We'll just kind of use these platitudes to kind of excuse ourselves of, of, of not growing in the Lord. And, and every time we come up with uh, difficulty, come face to face with it, we crumble or we just, we, we, uh, just posture up and we, we try to protect ourselves, cocoon ourselves, and we become even hardened hearts uh, through it instead of becoming people who are more gracious and loving through it. it. It's a hard path to be secure in Christ, to recognize who you are in him and to walk in that. Because once you start to recognize the, the reality of insecurities, the reality that the devil's going to try and twist those in your life, now you're no longer ignorant, right? Ignorance is bliss. Let's just live life, not paying attention to this. But I'm sorry, I just exposed that to you if you didn't already know. No more ignorance. This is why I want you to walk away with, church. If you're sure of your identity in Christ, you're less vulnerable to the doubts of the devil and people. I'll say it again. If you're sure of your identity in Christ, if you're sure of it, you're less vulnerable to the doubts of the devil and people. Because this world is tough. People are tough. Because people are hurting and hurt people hurt people. We're all walking around with wounds. All walking around with wounds that make us sometimes rabid dogs want to bite each other, you know? You're not going to get out of this life <laughs> until he raises you to life. If you are sure of your identity in Christ, you're less vulnerable to the doubts of the devil and people. So let me ask you again, how important is being right to you? How do you respond when someone doubts you or challenges you? I've got just a few practical takeaways that maybe you can take on this week to to become the person who is more sure of your identity in Christ than what the caricatures are that people have created for you, of who you are. First thing is to know what God says. Know what God says. Get in the word. Y'all, uh, this is how Jesus did battle with the devil. All through this, he responds with, with Scripture. 
Scripture rightly applied. And he, he, he had to study that. And we have to study that. The devil knows how to use a sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. He does it for ill, but he knows how to use it. The question is, do you? And the only way you're going to do that is through the, the regular, habitual, everyday, little bit by little bit, growing in your knowledge of God and what he's expecting of you. Because when you start reading scripture, you'll start to notice what he says about other people, how you should deal with them, how you should deal with your own self, how you should understand who God is and what he's doing in the world. And, and it gives you perspective for what's happening around you. There's all kinds of places and sources that you're going to get uh, information and on ways to interpret and apply what you see in this world. You're going to be able to get the news that's always going to be clickbaity and always going to be uh, focused on the negative because that's what we focus on the most. Not to say that there aren't injustices. There are, and we should care about those things. And at the same time, we're called to be people of joy and love and peace and patience. And we're not going to be those kinds of people if we're not steadily in the word and steadily reminding ourselves of who God is. Second thing is to remember that your identity, your life, your worth, it's all been given to you by him. You don't have to prove it. He has already proven it. How? By sending Jesus to die in your place, to raise to life, and then to send the Holy Spirit to indwell you as the seal and the guarantee of your salvation. Remember, you, you don't have to prove anything. He's already given it to you. Remember, like if you don't recognize this, your insecurities might right now be the very thing that fuels you, but they also might eventually be the things that burn you up. All of us got something that drives us to do the things that we do. And if the source is insecurity, then that could be the thing that fuels you and it gets you far. But eventually... It might burn you up too. So you have to deal with the things. And the last thing is to get from, with, from outside of ourselves and encourage others when you see them living out God's desires for them. Church, uh, I think the scripture's clear, like, and for a reason, God wants us as the body of Christ, the family of God, to encourage one another, to spur each other on to good works. Why? Because this life will knock you down knock you out. We need some people around us to help us get back up, to encourage us when we're actually following after the Lord's leading. Not because we're looking to each other for our sense of self-worth, but because we're encouraging each other and following after King Jesus. Remember, we're in a battle. We need to keep morale high. And so if your morale's low, then Consider, are, are you encouraging people around you? Are you around people who are encouraging to you? If not, then make some changes. One last question. I want you to just wrestle with this. Give us some thought this week. What are you trying to prove? in your life what are you trying to prove and who are you trying to prove it to freedom in Christ uh, Steve Carter 
uh, said this and has stuck with me ever since. Freedom in Christ is when you have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. That's freedom in Christ. When you have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. What are you trying to prove? I encourage you to wrestle with God about that and help him or give him the opportunity to help you come to terms with that and then give it to him so he can heal you from it. The Lord loves you and he wants to guard your heart through the battles that we face. And remember, we don't do battle with the devil from a place of still waging war for a victory. We battle with him from victory. Jesus has already won. We're on his team. He's already had the victory. He's gone ahead of us. So you can walk in confidence each and every day. Church, would you stand? We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for the, the word that you give us each and every day that we open up your scriptures. Um, help us to live anticipating what you're going to do in us and through us. Help us to live in freedom and to, to recognize when the devil's trying to attack us that we can respond to him with the truth of your word, that we don't even have to give his prompts a second thought. We can just respond with your truth and move on. God, your word says if, if we resist the devil, he will flee from, from us. Uh, so help us to stay on guard, to always put on the full armor of God, to recognize that we're in a fight. And help us to, to really rest in the fact that in Christ we are your child in whom you are well pleased. That, that's amazing, hard to believe. Help us to believe it. We love you, Jesus. Please hear us as we sing to you. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.